The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and I am very happy to introduce our guest, Dr. David Mealy, who is the Senior Vice President of the Change Companies. Dr. Mealy is a board-certified psychiatrist, and he is certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Mealy has trained and consulted for hundreds of organizations, ranging from small mental health centers to government departments and national behavioral health care companies. Dr. Mealy is also the chief editor of the revised Second edition of the ACM criteria. He has over 30 years experience in person-centered treatment and program development for people with co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. Dr. Mee Lee earned his medical degree from the University of Queensland in Australia in 1972, and he earned his MS in psychiatry from Ohio State University in 1976. And today we're going to be talking with Dr. Mee Lee about the new ACM criteria. And thank you, Dr. Mee Lee, for spending this hour with us. Thank you, Mary, for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. Could you explain to our audience um, about the ACM criteria? This is the third edition, but how did it come into development? Well, yes, actually, as you were reading the bio, I guess that's a little out of date now because I'm chief editor of this new third edition which uh, and have been involved really since its beginning. Our first edition came out in 1991, uh, second edition, 96, second edition revised, 2001, and now just in October, we, we released the third edition, which had its roots really in the 80s when, uh, well, even in the very early part of the 80s, personally, I was uh, running a 21-day hospital-based program in the Boston area, and uh, Blue Cross of Massachusetts really said we shouldn't have fixed length of stay programs, and that continued with uh, Cleveland, Ohio programs having a similar uh, experience. And uh, what happened was we we brought together some national sets of criteria that were getting some attention with the first edition. And the ASAM criteria are, are really the most widely used um, criteria for assessment, service planning, level of care, uh, placement decisions and, and ongoing disease management uh, in, in addiction treatment. So they provide a multidimensional assessment that helps to define severity of illness and level of function to match people with the right level of care uh, in a continuum of care. I think historically addiction treatment has been um, criticized for being a one-size-fits-all type of treatment, and this certainly attempts to individualize addiction treatment. That's right. I really think as I was giving a little brief history orientation, that's where it came out of where 
payers said, you know, you shouldn't have fixed length of stay. No other illness do we have that for, especially a chronic illness like addiction. And uh, so the mission right from the beginning of the ASAM criteria was to, to, to really be good stewards of resources so we didn't just plug everybody into one size fits all. And, and also, though, to stretch resources to give people, you know, as much care as possible so that they can get the best outcome. So that does mean individualized treatment and not fixed program-driven treatment. Well, I think if you could explain to our audience a little bit about um, the, the dimensions and why those are important when assessing for level of care. Well, yes, addiction, even though it's a, a brain disease, the, the, when those circuitries go wrong, it really affects the whole person, physical, mental, spiritual, social. And so whenever we're assessing, and really uh, George Engel was a psychiatrist back in the 70s and 80s who talked about biopsychosocial, and he was not just talking about addiction and mental health, but really saying all illnesses have a biological aspect and, and uh, also have mental and social and cultural and spiritual aspects to it. So the six dimensions of the ASAM criteria really reflect a holistic view of looking not just at what drugs a person's using, but looking at how that affects their needs for withdrawal management. We want to be aware of people's physical health uh, needs. Uh, as well as, of course, especially in your work, Mary, uh, co-occurring mental and substance issues. Uh, so we want to be aware of people's mental health uh, needs. And the fourth dimension in the ASAM criteria is called readiness to change because many people come to treatment uh, more at action and motivated for getting people off their back or keeping their children or staying out of jail or keeping their job or a relationship. So assessing what they're ready and interested in doing is important that we start where they're at and then attract them into recovery. And then the fifth dimension is the relapse potential dimension that's looking at how likely will a person keep using or keep having mental health problems. And then the sixth dimension is recovery environment where we're looking at what sort of home do they live in? Do they even have a place to stay? Uh, who are their family, friends, significant others, work needs, uh, educational needs, childcare, transportation, all of those recovery supports. So the ASAM criteria really, I think, provide a structure for comprehensive assessment, looking at people's needs, but also their strengths, skills, and resources, and then developing an, an individualized plan with them. Well, I think that's I think one, that's one of the beautiful things about about the dimensions is that it really makes you stop and think about treatment is more than just what happens in your um, designed program. That um, I know many people have been very successful in treatment, but go home to environments that are not conducive to recovery, or they have. Um, you know, some cognitive inabilities that really um, don't support them, you know, mainstreaming into work. And I think that um, this really helps providers look at the whole person. Yes, and really the reasons we have the, the six dimensions is because all of those aspects are just as important as sort of traditional medical necessity areas like is a person going to have a withdrawal seizure? Are they uh, suffering from 
you know, HIV or AIDS and do they have a mental health problem, equally as important is what are they interested in working on and, and how likely is it going to keep blowing up and who, who and where do they live. So those other dimensions are in our mind with the ASAM criteria just as significant and important and contributing to the outcome as kind of traditional medical necessity areas. Well, as it is with other chronic illnesses, I know we have a hospital shuttle that will take people to cardiac, you know, um, rehab or into their um, support group for diabetes or whatever, and there's a shuttle that goes all over town that will pick people up who don't have transportation. In New Hampshire, we're very rural, so that if you're arrested for DWI and you get your license taken away, you know, the addiction treatment is probably anywhere from 10 to 30 miles from where you live, and Mm. there's no... There's no kind of support for that. And so I remember when the criteria first came out in the um, in the 90s, we were sitting around reading this thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, we've never thought about that. Obviously, yes. what people do is they drive illegally without a license to get to treatment, you know. But, right. um, but you know, those, those are very big things that are um, often overlooked. Right, and uh, that's a wonderful thing if you have transportation to help people with diabetes and other chronic illnesses so much uh, just as equally should we have for addiction illness. Well, historically, you know, if you don't get the treatment, you're not motivated. <laughs> that's that's you know? been the view, that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the, uh, unfortunately, the old view. You didn't send somebody a, a prompt or telephone call because if you did, you were enabling them. That's right. Well, I think we that's that's really why we think Dimension 4 Red Interchange is so important because that is a treatment, an assessment and treatment dimension. That, uh, you know, what I always say is if somebody's talking to you, they're motivated uh, and they're at action for something. And we want to start with what they're motivated and at action for. So it's just that what they are motivated for may not be what we think they should be motivated for. But if they're there talking to us, we want to attract them into recovery from that point on. So uh, I'm happy to have somebody come into treatment, even if it's just to get their children back or to keep a relationship with a job, because then we have a chance to attract them into recovery. I think when we look at treatment from that perspective, it gives our relapse a different connotation because if I'm in treatment to get my children back and I get my children back and I start drinking again, um, you know, how, then how do we look at that in terms of relapse? Because I've obtained my goal. Yes. Well, we've, we, we actually have a whole section uh, where we expand much more out on explaining about Dimension 5, the, the relapse dimension, and, and really encourage people to think about uh, well, we even suggest in the new edition, is relapse the right term? You know, if your blood pressure goes up or if you get another suicidal episode, we don't usually say, hey, you relapse, your blood pressure's up or your diabetes, your sugar's up. Uh, we just say that's not a good outcome. How do we assess what went wrong and how do we change the treatment plan? And that's what we need to impress on child protective services and drug courts and mental health courts, that if somebody gets a positive drug screen, that's a, that's a indication the outcome's not good. And just like any other illness, we need to assess what went wrong. How do we change the, the plan? And if the person's willing to change their plan in a positive direction, then we want to keep going because that 
gives us the best chance of having them become a good parent or a good worker or a good uh, partner and, and, and get into recovery. I know. I think um, this certainly makes treatment much more humane. And, yes. and I think that, um, you know, you know, I love being an addiction provider, but I also see the other side to our, um, I don't know, delivery system of care where um, sometimes we're very, uh, I don't know, abstinence-based treatment isn't always um, the most effective for people if you mm-hmm. expect somebody to be abstinent in 30 days or 60 days. Right. And I think families struggle with this because they think, okay, he's in treatment, she's in treatment, she's going to come out and she's going to be all better. That's right. Well, it's a curious thing. I think uh, those of us who work in the addiction field will say uh, on one side of our mouth that addiction is an illness uh, characterized by people being out of control. And then when people have a flare-up of their signs and symptoms of addiction, we tell them to come back when they're stable or we tell them it's grounds for discharge. And we would never do that with somebody who gets suicidal or has a panic attack or if their blood pressure went up. Uh, so we, we, we have some mixed feelings about it, even in the field where we're treating people. Uh, if somebody has the addiction illness, we, of course, want ideally for them to be abstinent, but it's an abstinence orientation. You can't mandate somebody to be abstinent any more than you can mandate somebody to be non-psychotic or non-suicidal or, or, or have their blood pressure be normal. We can't mandate that. That's a treatment issue. Um, one of the things I've noticed that was different in the new um, edition is that you're talking about withdrawal management as opposed to detoxification. What was the thought behind that? Yeah, that's a, that was an interesting switch we did. Uh, basically, the liver detoxifies, but clinicians manage withdrawal. But it's not just being fancy with the words. We really wanted people to begin to to pay more attention to using a continuum of withdrawal management services. And in the adult ASAM criteria, uh, we have five levels of withdrawal management. Now, if, if you put a person into, quotes, detox at a hospital level for three or four days to make sure they don't have a seizure, and then we discharge them, and then they may use within a week, and we say, hey, why are you doing that? We detoxed you. Well, no, we didn't. We just made sure that you didn't have a withdrawal seizure, but we didn't manage your withdrawal. So this is an area we can talk some more about after the break. Okay, and thank you for that segue. We'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be, taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Dr. David Mealy, who is the Senior Vice President for the Change Companies, and he's also the Chief Editor of the revised third edition of the ASAM Criteria. Before going to break, Dr. Mealy, we were talking about one of the changes in the addition from detox services to withdrawal management, and you were right in the middle of a really good statement when we went to break, so could you finish? Well, yes, I was saying that it's not just sort of switching the language. It's really thinking more that when we manage withdrawal, it's much more than just putting somebody into hospital for three or four days to make sure they don't have a seizure. Many, many drugs that people need to withdraw from, like marijuana and benzodiazepines, you're not going to be able to just uh, detoxify them in the sense of getting the drug out of the system in a three or four days or even a week. Uh, on the other hand, you can't keep a person in a hospital detox unit for that time, especially uh, at $600, $800, a day. That's a lot of use of resources. So what typically happens is that we discharge a person after a few days when we think they're over the seizure danger for alcohol, and, and if they're benzodiazepines, that seizure danger can go anywhere from 10 days to two weeks very difficult to keep a person at a hospital level of care for that amount of time, and yet they need help with managing their withdrawal. So in the ASAM criteria, we have five levels of withdrawal management from 24-hour nurses and doctors who are seeing the person every day for the people who are really unstable to 24-hour nurses with a doctor available if necessary, uh, but then also 24-hour clinically managed support for people who don't need doctors and nurses but don't need to be safely on the street yet. They can't do that, and they may need some 24-hour support. Um, and then a day treatment type ambulatory withdrawal management and then uh, the least intensive in a doctor's office. But 
you could see that if somebody was in a 24-hour clinically managed setting at $100 a day or $200 a day, you could give a person four or five days in a 24-hour support setting for what we now spend in one day at a more intensive level. So uh, you could actually, without spending any more money than what we spend now, give a person two weeks and maybe even three weeks of withdrawal management support for what we now spend at a more intensive and sometimes unnecessarily more intensive level of withdrawal management in, in a hospital level of care. So the the point is, I think, by changing the terminology from detoxification to withdrawal management, we want to encourage the field to think about managing people's ongoing withdrawal process, which is not just a physical uh, thing, but, but also uh, cravings and emotional swings uh, from withdrawal, and, and stretching those resources using the full continuum of withdrawal management services so that we can get a better outcome for people. Well, and I think um, a lot of people believe that detox is treatment, and detox is a medical procedure that allows you to come safely off the medication, but it's not addiction treatment per se. Oh, absolutely. I mean, thinking of detox as treatment is like thinking of helping somebody with their acute heart attack that that's treatment for their, their cardiovascular disease or, or treating somebody who's had a diabetic coma event and just stabilizing that as if that's treatment for their diabetes. Well, that's just one little piece of getting a person started. It really isn't treatment. And the other thing the ACM criteria does is it does define different levels of care or treatment. And could you share with our audience what they are? Well, yes. There's well, there's uh, basically five broad levels. There's 0.5, which is early intervention for people who have not yet crossed the line into addiction illness, but certainly need some education and risk advice. It might be somebody who got their first uh, driving while intoxicated uh, arrest. It might be a young person who's having uh, you know trouble experimenting with substances and getting into some trouble, but doesn't have the disease of addiction. So that's one level. And then we have level one, which is outpatient treatment. And then we have level two, which is out, intensive outpatient slash partial hospital. And then level three are the residential levels. And level four is the most intense medically managed intensive inpatient treatment, like a hospital or an acute closed psychiatric unit, 24-hour nurses, and a doctor. And then within those levels are a variety of gradations, um, which, for example, in the residential uh, levels, we have uh, four levels from from 24-hour living support through um, some levels of residential 24-hour treatment to then medically monitored, which means uh, 24-hour nurses, with a doctor available to see a person if necessary. So all in all, we have a wide continuum of of levels of care, not meant to have people just automatically step up the ladder or automatically step down the ladder, but to really give options to place a person wherever they need to be depending on their severity and their needs, much like you would do with with any continuum for for other illnesses. Not everybody starts off uh, in the intensive care unit for 
their heart attack or for their diabetes or whatever, uh, but they need to be there if, if they're having a very uh, unstable and life-threatening situation. Some people never get to inpatient treatment because they can be managed as an outpatient, and, and that should, is the same with addiction illness as well. So for the consumer of services, how would they know what level a program is if they're looking for um, different levels of care? Is there, do people use it on their website? Is there certification? How would a consumer know? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, in the ASAM criteria, we have plans to really help consumers understand, um, firstly, how to ask the questions to be informed about uh, when they're considering different programs. Uh, we need to do better consumer uh, education about what questions would you ask because if you just look at people's brochures or marketing material, that doesn't really help you to be an informed consumer. Uh, and so one of the uh, things that I think we have to begin to educate people about is not everybody needs to be at the same level of care. Not everybody needs to be in that level of care uh, for the same exact amount of time. It really depends on on what that particular person's needs are. And then we have to help consumers understand that a good program is not going to try to just uh, get you to be in one level of care. They're going to give you options and to explain and inform you about all of the various levels of care that are available and, and, and what and how that decision is made about what level of care you should be in. Do insurance companies recognize um, the levels of care and the dimensions? The, m- many of the insurance companies uh, use the ASAM criteria for their uh, addiction uh, utilization review. Very often, this is when they may be uh, told that they have to use the ASAM criteria. There are certain managed care Medicaid contracts and other contracts that um, some states and counties will say you must use the ASAM criteria as your utilization review criteria, and then they use it. But there have companies that have embraced, embraced uh, initially value options was one of the first uh, private managed care companies to uh, endorse the use of the ASAM criteria. Um, so payers like, well, the Department of Defense, for example, I guess they're both a provider and a payer, but they have uh, used the ASAM criteria to define their levels of care and to pay for levels of care throughout the military system throughout the world, actually. Um, and then there are other major managed care companies and, and, and third-party payers who use the ASAM criteria to uh, determine level of care and justify uh, an authorized treatment. Um, when I saw you in Atlanta, you had mentioned um, to the audience about software that was being developed to complement um, the new edition. Yes, we're, we're excited about uh, an investment that SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, made in the research software. You know, the ASAM criteria have had a decade of research under the leadership of Dr. David Gasprin when he was at Harvard and, and uh, the... Uh, organizations that we think of in terms of addiction, NIDA, NIAAA, and CSAT uh, combined really had that research uh, support uh, 
to the tune of maybe six or seven million dollars. And then SAMHSA has invested almost a million dollars in making the research software available uh, for uh, people, probably, uh, you know, an investment that I, I would never have dreamed of their doing, but a wonderful investment in getting the ASAM criteria to have a standardized uh, implementation for the adult criteria using uh, and updating and making more user-friendly the research software that David Gassman had developed. And what the software does is people would do an assessment, uh, especially if you're new, it might take an hour and a half, but as you get more used to it, you can uh, shave that time. And it's a standardized uh, assessment. Uh, many of the questions come from the Addiction Severity Index. Uh, then this is uploaded to the uh, web, and it will then uh, analyze and give you a report on what dimensions of the six dimensions are a priority, help guide you through um, placement decisions. Now, this is not fully finished. It's in its pilot phase, and we will expect to release in, in 2014. Uh, and we're now just improving the software, but when it's out, it will really provide a standardized implementation of the adult uh, criteria to, to, to help people who want to use the ASAM criteria have a standardized assessment which will give a, a nice report uh, and allow people to start having aggregate data of their assessments. Uh, and, and we're excited that this will then supplement the book. So the book and the software will go hand in hand. You need the book to understand the principles and the criteria that are inside the black box of the software. And then if you want to have a standardized implementation of the book, that's where the software would come in. Um, you had mentioned about um, adult services. What about adolescent services? Well, the software at this point is not uh, hasn't been researched on adolescent uh, criteria, but many of the uh, principles and even, I mean, I think we, we should sort of uh, uh, pilot it with adolescents at some point, but officially it has not been tested on adolescent populations, but it's very similar, I think, to what would be useful for adolescent populations. So I think at some future point, once we have the adult version out, we'll be looking uh, closely at that. Uh, certainly the book, though, has very specific separate criteria for adolescents and for adults. So anybody working with um, youth and, and uh, young people can really see specific adolescent issues in terms of uh, assessment and treatment planning and then specific criteria uh, that we've always had from the beginning, separate criteria for adults and adolescents in, in the book. Um, and we'll be right back after this commercial to talk about uh, co-occurring disorders and the ACM criteria. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. One hour at a time. Our guest today is Dr. David Neely, who is the chief editor of the revised third edition of the ASAM criteria, which are the treatment criteria for substance-related addictive and co-occurring um, disorders. And uh, can we talk a little bit about co-occurring disorders? Because I think um, the the second edition really tried to help our profession quantify what is a co-occurring disorder because everybody says they treat co-occurring disorders, but the ASAM criteria really attempts to get people to to um, own what it is they treat. So could you talk about uh, the criteria for co-occurring disorders? Yes, Mary. In the, in the 2001 edition, we introduced the um, concept of uh, what, what then we called dual diagnosis capable and dual diagnosis enhanced. And in this new third edition, we updated that to say co-occurring uh, capable and co-occurring enhanced, meaning that we felt all programs who are working with uh, people should be at least co-occurring capable, meaning that they are capable of assessing a person's mental health and addiction needs and through collaboration and consultation, if not right on site, make sure that people are getting all of their needs met around mental health and addiction issues. Now, of course, uh, even in the first edition of the criteria, we had the six dimensions where dimension three was emotional behavioral conditions. So we, from the very beginning, said we should be assessing people's uh, mental health needs along with their uh, withdrawal management and, and physical health needs as well. But in the uh, current new edition that we, we expanded on helping people look at 
are you a co-occurring capable program, uh, which we felt everybody should be at least capable of assessing and getting those needs met, but uh, you may be a co-occurring enhanced program, which means that you have the cross-trained staff, you have the resources to treat people who may be unstable in both addiction and mental health issues, and you have a, a, a team that is not going to freak out if somebody is suicidal or psychotic, and also if not, if a, if a person is having withdrawal problems, they're going to be quite comfortable with that as well. That would be a co-occurring enhanced program that can manage stable, uh, unstable mental health and addiction issues. And then we added a, a new section in this edition called Complexity Capable, and this was a contribution of uh, Ken Minkoff, who has done a lot of work with co-occurring disorders, and he, he really heightened our awareness about it's not just about is somebody having mental health or addiction issues now, but as you know, many people, and if you think of the six dimensions, may have trauma issues, they may have uh, work and money problems, they may have family and and all kinds of difficulties with chronic pain and their physical health issues. Uh, they may have a lot of problems with uh, cognitive issues, and and that the norm increasingly is that people are complex, and so uh, we have to increasingly look at are we complexity capable, able to really address uh, all of the issues that a person presents with. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's um, if you if you're really trying to be. Uh, person-centered, then complexity capable is kind of where you need to be. I mean, yeah. um, and, and I don't know that how achievable that is with um, funding streams and um, staff training. And um, do you see that as the future, though? Well, when you think about, you know, we're in an era of, of healthcare reform, and if if it really pans out with, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, with um. Um, medical homes and health homes and accountable care organizations. Really what what we're realizing with health care now is that uh, we have to move from sick care where we kind of got paid for taking care of, care of people who are sick to how do we move to health care and wellness where we're now focused on addressing all the issues to help a person be well. So I think increasingly our healthcare system is going to start paying us for looking at the whole person, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because that's how you um, start bending the cost curve, meaning that we're providing services in the most efficient way, that if we can keep people well and look at where they live and who they live with and, and their multiplicity of issues, uh, that that I think the changes in healthcare reform are going to force us to start looking at the whole person. And a good example of this was I was speaking to some nurses who were trying to make sure people didn't get readmitted to the hospital because now if you have people get readmitted within 30 days, you can get penalized for that financially. Uh, before, when we were just focused on sick care, if somebody got sick and had to be readmitted, well, that was good. You filled a bed and you got more money. Now, when you're looking at keeping people well, uh, those nurses were saying we're much more interested in the 60% of people who get readmitted 
because of addiction issues, and now we want to look at their addiction issues and where they're living and and who's at home to support them and to make sure they have their medications and ongoing support. That that holistic view then is really better for people in their treatment, but it's going to be better for money as well. So uh, being complexity capable is not just sort of being nice, uh, but it's what will give people better outcomes and also what will help us to use our healthcare resources more efficiently and effectively. It seems a more integrated model. Absolutely. I think um, people don't just come in with addiction across their forehead or mental health or diabetes across their forehead. They come in as whole people in the context of their culture and environment. And, and if we ignore any of those aspects, I think we don't do good care. And in addition, we don't use resources effectively and efficiently either. I know one of the things we've been doing the last couple of years at Westbridge is that all of our residential um, participants get a two-week Pittsburgh sleep study um, assessment. Mm. And we refer people out for sleep studies because we're seeing a lot of folks have sleep disorders that are independent of their mental illness and maybe as a result of their addiction or maybe not. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, and that makes a big difference for folks. When they get a good night's sleep, they feel better, they make better choices. Right. Um, yeah, no, you know, I think that's an example of, of looking at every aspect that might uh, contribute to people's uh, sickness, but also their wellness, absolutely. Yeah. I noticed in the book, too, that you um, talk about gambling and tobacco, which is new. Yes, that is new for us because we wanted to acknowledge uh, two addictions that I think have uh, gotten uh, not as much attention as they should. Uh, And certainly with the new DSM-5, which is the chapters called Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders, Gambling, Disorder has been shifted into that chapter, so we wanted to make sure people started to heighten awareness about gambling. And then tobacco or nicotine addiction is really one of those other areas in our field that we've had ambivalence about. I I know a lot of people used to say, well, you can't treat everything at once, and we we, uh, recommend people not try to stop smoking straight away when they're trying to deal with everything else. But... uh, But we put in a chapter on tobacco use disorders uh, and nicotine addiction because we think that's just as an important addiction. And it's a a funny thing uh, when I hear people say, well, we, 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 we don't let people smoke in the program, but they can smoke in the gazebo on the grounds because, uh, you know, we don't expect them to stop everything at once. Well, I'm still looking for the uh, heroin gazebo and the cocaine gazebo and the Xanax gazebo for the people who don't want to stop those drugs straight away. And we don't do that. So we've not been consistent in addiction treatment, and that this chapter in the new edition raises uh, our consciousness about that nicotine addiction is a very tricky addiction, just as important as the others. Right. And, you know, I I think, as I remember, that most of the people who really believe that you couldn't stop um, smoking when you were doing everything else were addiction counselors who smoked. (laughs) That's right. Well, in the new book, we have a number of interesting case studies, one of which is uh, illustrating that point of the counselor who's saying, well, you know, uh, I don't see why we have to stop this addiction all at once. And 
And so it's going to take some consciousness raising with stuff. We would never let a person who doesn't have an alcohol problem go out to lunch, have a glass of wine or a couple of beers, and then run group with alcohol in their breath. And yet we let uh, people who uh, are struggling with uh, tobacco use disorder and nicotine addiction have a smoke in their break and then run a group uh, reeking of uh, nicotine, so or tobacco smoke. So, you know, it's, I know, a controversial area and uh, easy for me to say since I don't have that addiction, but uh, to be consistent, we really felt that the ASAM criteria would take a stand in this edition and and say we need to to take tobacco use disorder seriously. Well, I, I have the new edition in front of me, and certainly compared to the revised edition, which was gray and all the print was black on the inside, um, this is very colorful and um, much more inviting. It the is, and people can, can uh, get a glimpse of that, Mary, uh, if they go to, to www.asamcriteria.org. You can really see um, some uh, pages of the new book. You can look at some videos on what's new. You can download some articles that uh, I've written in, in various magazines on the new edition and even download some PowerPoint slides on what's new in the new edition and, and get a real flavor for what the new book looks like. I think one of the nice things about the case studies is that you can use it in peer review supervision as well, you know, um, mm. for those of us that have to maintain our license. Yeah, we, we have some case studies in different sections. In the, with, there's a, a section on uh, understanding how to work effectively with managed care and healthcare reform. We have some case studies in there and, uh, and, and in the tobacco chapter and in other parts where we try to give clinical examples to help understand how to use uh, the criteria. So um, for people who don't have the book in front of them, could you uh, try to describe it for them? Yes, well, uh, if, if anybody's seen the previous edition, this one's hard hardback, so it's a sturdy book, and we have a uh, two-color, and we also have, li- have lined the book up to kind of follow the clinical process from intake and assessment to service planning and level of care, so that it follows through the clinical process. We tried to lay the book out in a way that would walk you through from assessment to service planning and level of care. And then we have a really nice feature this time that the change companies who is in partnership with ASAM on on publishing and marketing the book, if you run your finger along the edge, you can see uh, just exactly where you are in the book because there's some tabs which uh, show you what chapter you're in and you can really zoom in uh, very uh, easily to see where you are in the book. And in addition, we have a subscription-based web-enhanced version of the book, which means you uh, can tap in through the Internet. If you're a subscriber to the uh, web-enhanced book, you'll be able to click on a a word. It'll take you straight to the glossary. You'll be able to click on some videos and get further explanation about uh, a variety of things in the new book. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk a little bit more about the ASAM Criteria 3rd Edition. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to My Artist Time. Our guest today is Dr. David Mealy, who is the chief editor for the third edition of the ASAM criteria, which addresses levels of care and dimensions of care for people with substance use and co-occurring mental health disorders. Um, David, before we went to break, we were talking in the last segment a little bit about adolescent criteria. Um, is there more we should know about that? Well, yes, we've uh, always had adolescent separate adult and adolescent criteria. I think what we did uh, new in this book is we pulled together all of the principles about assessment and service planning and put those all together. Previously, it was like having two books in one book, just an adult book and an adolescent book. We merged a lot of the aspects that are important. Uh, around assessment and the principles of, of the ASAM criteria, but we made a special little icon that people interested in adolescent information could zero in, and there's a little A that says this is an adolescent-specific piece of information. So you can look through the book and look for those specific areas to zero in on the adolescent-specific uh, principles. And as I said there, though, are still separate criteria for adults and adolescents that you can really run through and look at the levels of care. Uh, So we want to make sure that people can find what they need in terms of the adolescent criteria uh, separate from the adult, but we've also uh, made good use of the book by merging common principles together. Um, I also noticed that you have a, a a nice glossary in the back of the book. I don't remember that in the other edition. Well, we beefed up the glossary. We did have a glossary last time, but we beefed it up this time to include um, 
a good explanation of most terms in the book, but we also included some terms that the ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine Board, has encouraged people not to use. For example, substance abuse is a term which, even though it was in DSM-4, ASAM was never comfortable with substance abuse because uh, people are abused, not uh, substances. And, and, and when you say somebody's a substance abuser, it has a pejorative sort of connotation. You're a substance abuser, sort of sounds like a child abuser or an elder abuser. And so uh, we have a number of terms like that that uh, are encouraged not to be used. So that's in the glossary as well. But it's a very good glossary, I think, that will give people a good orientation to a number of terms in addiction treatment. So what is the preferred term? Well, we really just, if you're talking about DSM terms, you're talking about substance use disorders or we talk about harmful use of substances or risky use of substances so that if somebody was using methamphetamine uh, in a harmful use, we don't use the term substance misuse because that sounds like there's a good use of methamphetamine and a misuse. So we don't actually, I mean, misuse probably might be appropriate to Oxycontin or to, uh, you know, a, a narcotic. Um, and so we talk about uh, trying to speak more about what kind of use a person is doing. So harmful use, uh, or harmful use of methamphetamine rather than saying methamphetamine abuse, something like that. Um, I first heard the term substance misuse when I was in England, and I always, when I hear that, I always think of the English. So. And that's true. That that is more used there, and and uh, and we we talk about substance misuse is appropriate on one level for drugs that have a correct use, but once you start using it in in terms of uh, 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 drugs that really are addictive, it, it gets a little um, iffy there as well. Um, where can people uh, obtain education around the, the new criteria and the changes in the new criteria? Well, uh, yes. So the Change Companies has a partnership with ASAM to really provide accessible and affordable learning. So we have a, a new, uh, I think, a two-hour e-learning on what's new in the ASAM criteria. Uh, we have updated two previous uh, learnings that are in partnership with ASAM, one on the six dimensions, a five-hour interactive course where people can stop and start. Uh, you can pick up from where you left off. It's a mixture of interactive learning and cases with video clips of me explaining certain parts. So very, very well done. Just uh, five hours, five credits for $25. And, and if agents, uh, if organizations want to have access for their staff, they can work on a, 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 a access for a year so that people don't have to buy each module themselves. And then the second e-learning, or the third e-learning, really is going from assessment to service planning, a level of care. So if people are unfamiliar with the criteria, these would be a great place to start because you, uh, it's affordable, accessible, and you can go at your own pace uh, and get some real basic understanding. And these are all, uh, you can get credits for them, and even for physicians, uh, linked in with ASAM. Uh, physician credits because not a, enough physicians understand the ASAM criteria as well. And you can access all of that through asamcriteria.org uh, and, and uh, see how to, to, to get more information on that. And the book can be bought through... 
and at the same website. You, if uh, we're trying to put everything on one place so you know where to go, if you go to uh, asamcriteria.org, you can see how to order the book as well. Uh, or if people are familiar with the change companies, they can certainly call them, and you can see uh, changecompanies.net, that website, um, and go through through that as well. And Dr. Mealy, how can people uh, get a hold of you if they want to? Well, learn certainly more? you can uh, send me a, an email. Uh, you can get me at davidmeadley at gmail dot com. So D A B I D M E E L E E, or one word at gmail dot com. And then I also have a website at the Change Companies, dmeadley at changecompanies.net but whatever one's easy for you to remember happy to have people email me and I'll respond to them uh, and and uh, you know we want to try to clear up any questions people have about the ASAM criteria well and another resource that may not be directly tied to this but you also have a newsletter oh sure that's right thank you Mary uh, tips and topics is uh, something we've been doing for, for, for over 10 years now a free monthly e-newsletter if you want to access that you can look at back issues at uh, changecompanies.net and then if you click on blogs and go to tips and topics you can uh, sign up there as well as uh, download for free lots of uh, information uh, that, that you see there as well so changecompanies.net um, and click on blogs and go to tips and topics Dr. Millie, thank you for uh, being with us, and thank you for all that you do for our profession. Thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for the invitation. Have a good week, everyone, and um, have a happy Thanksgiving. I won't. Uh, somebody else will be hosting next week, so I'll talk to you after the holiday. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.